Snap Studios. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Snap. Today, on Snap Judgment, from WNYC, we're going to go to the 1970s West Texas, where the good meets the bad and the ugly. Snap Judgment. I got tired of running up and down the highway 115 mile an hour all day long and riding tickets. After nine years on highway patrol, Bob Faber needed something more exciting. So he joined the Texas Rangers. Texas Rangers are like the fixers. They help local police solve their toughest cases, and Bob solved hundreds. There was the preacher who fell in love with a married woman and then shot her husband. There was the necrophiliac funeral worker and the cattle poachers at the King Ranch. But of all of them, one case sticks out. It starts in Brady, a small town in the dusty middle of Texas. Elton David Myers, I never heard of that hombre. In 1970, policeman in the Brady PD called and told me, he said, well, that old kid that used to live here, they thought that he is over here at his aunt's house in Brady. The old kid was Elton David Myers, and he had just escaped from jail. We drove by the house and parked. We saw him. He was sitting in the living room. The blind is up. When we walked back up there to the yard, he was up, and he was nervous. He was looking around, just pacing the floor. Guess he had heard a stop up there. So I started down the north side of the house. As he had walked past a window in the house, I'd just stay in abreast of him outside. I saw him because it's dark. The house was illuminated. He was on a mission, and that mission was get to that back door and get out of there. And we just went side by side the whole length of that shotgun house. He went out the back door and ran out in the dark. I just bulldogged him and we went to the ground. Elton David Myers had run right into Bob's arms. Bob handcuffed him and drove him down to the local jail. He was wiry and he was about five foot 10 on the best day, 160 pounds, but he was tough. Just a short while later, Bob noticed a string of new burglaries. No one had told him, but David had broken out of jail again. He was stealing cars all over Texas and New Mexico until he was arrested for robbery and locked up. This time, 
in a maximum security prison. But even that couldn't hold him. David escaped again, and this one was big. When Bob went to the prison, he learned that David had grabbed three of the guard's keys and from inside his cell made copies using a slice of stale bread. David managed to get that key just for a moment while the sheriff was distracted, and he laid it down on that bread and folded that bread over and mashed it on that bread, put the key back in the cell door. Well, he had his pattern right there. Well, he saved his toothbrush handles, his uh, plastic spoons and forks and stuff. And then he, he always wanted brute aftershave lotion. But brute got a lot of alcohol in it. He'd break all that plastic up and then and <clears throat> use that, that brute aftershave lotion for fuel. It would melt that. Then he poured that melted plastic into the bread where the impression of the key was. I still have that key. It worked like a charm. That was probably the moment when Bob realized Elton David Myers wasn't an ordinary criminal. He was actually a little impressed with David's smarts and tenacity. And that rascal, he was a locksmith and a magician. One store he broke into, the safe wasn't even locked. Yet when we got there, it had been completely disassembled. And I asked him later, I said, what the devil did you tear that man's safe up for? He said, I had never seen that type of safe before. So I took it apart. So if I ever ran across another one, I would know how it worked. I said, nothing like on the job training. He didn't have to take pencil paper and write notes. He just retained it in his head. No prison or jail in Texas could hold David Myers. One morning with David and his new girlfriend on the lam again, Bob got a call from a sheriff about a car David had stolen. The sheriff was calling from Montana. I said, he's probably that burnt right in your grocery store right now. <laughs> said, better get you some help because he's got a sawed-off 12-gauge shotgun and a 45 automatic pistol. And you're probably going to have a little gunplay when you come out. About two hours later, he called me. He said, boy, you was right on all counts. The cops had caught David's girlfriend, but he'd gotten away. So you got any other ideas? And I said, yeah, I sure do. <laughs> I said, the best thing you do is get you an armed guard around the clock there in the jail because he's going to come in at gunpoint and try to get her out of there, or he's going to kidnap somebody and make a trade with you. And I told him, I said, I'll be up there just as soon as I can get there. So Bob hopped into his patrol car and drove the 24 hours to Montana. Once he got there, the authorities had captured David in a hail of gunfire. Went by the hospital, and old David was laying there flat on his back. He had a handcuff on each wrist, leg iron on one leg. It went through the footboard. He saw me, he kind of grinned. He said, oh, I'm glad to see you. He said, I need to scratch my nose, and I can't even move. And I told him, I you better not move. I said, that deputy blow you plumb out of that bed if you start moving. <laughs> so 
Anyway, we visited there a few minutes, and I said, David, we head to Texas tomorrow. If you can walk, you can go with us. If you can't walk, you just going to stay right here. He wiggled his toes a little bit, and he said, you know, I'm beginning to get a little feeling already. <laughs> yeah, there wasn't nothing wrong with him. He just thinking all that injury and everything, and I knew it. <laughs> Waiting for his chance. Yeah, right, waiting for his chance. Bob had to get a Montana judge's written permission to extradite David back to Texas. Coming back from Montana when he started talking about what he had in mind and how he was going to rescue his girl from us. And uh, was going to, he would probably kidnap one of my children. And then and hey, it had me over a barrel. That's when I, I just slammed on the brake, slid to a halt. Now I told him, I said, up to now, it's, it's always just between the, the law and the outlaw. But I said, if you ever mention my family again, I'll kill you where you sit. And I guess he understood that because uh, I never had any more conversation like that. Over the next several years, with Bob close on his heels, David would steal dozens of cars, rob countless grocery stores, and break into safes all over Texas. I hauled him back and forth to penitentiary so many times I lost track of it. In jail, David would shut down and not talk to anyone. So the police would always have to call Bob in. The two ended up spending so much time together that this relationship became something beyond just cops and robbers. We'd just visit. We'd talk about his grandma and his grandpa, who I knew real well, and his mother abandoned him when he was a baby, and his daddy gave him to his grandma and grandpa. They were good people, but they were old people, and they were hard people. I mean, I don't imagine and there was a time in his life that anyone other than maybe in a heat of passion, some girl, no one ever embraced him and told him they loved him. I don't think he probably never had that said to him. And I sure hell wasn't going to tell him I loved him, but uh, uh, that's why it looked like he was looking for a friend. If I could be his friend, I'd be his friend. And if it took a little bragging on him, what the heck? I learned right quick. I said, David, You've got a talent that most folks don't have. Unfortunately, that talent is your trademark, but you've got it. That's all I can say is you, you're good. Well, he sat there and he started grinning just a little bit. I'd brag on him a little bit more. And the next thing he knew, he's telling me every cotton picking thing that I wanted to know about the job. And he just, he just couldn't resist. But David never made things easy on Bob. One day, Bob got a call from the Brady Sheriff. And he was crying. All I could understand him say, he said, they're gone. And they didn't need to say anything else. I knew what he meant. David had made another key and escaped from the Brady Jail. This time, he was on the run with a girlfriend and his cousin. The police spotted their car near the Llano River but the trio had fled on foot into the brush. So Bob started a manhunt on horseback. One day became two, two days became three, and when they came up with nothing, 
the prison warden loaned them dogs. The grass birds were so darn bad, some of the dogs did quit running. He's talking about spiky grass stickers. They were stabbing the dog's feet. So the warden hired a boot maker. He had 20 dogs, and he had to make 80 shoes. What did the dogs look like? Well, I'll tell you, that was the funniest sight. Some of those dogs was just as proud as punch of their footwear. And others was they just like they're walking in taffy. They just, they just stepping real high. Charging after the dogs on horseback in the pitch black, hoping not to get brained by a tree branch, this was the most brutal, physically demanding hunt for David that Bob had ever been involved in. I got up Monday morning. I did not lay back down until Friday night. Was there a point when you, you thought, I'm not having fun with this guy anymore? Yeah, I was very concerned about my family. And I knew he knew where I lived. He knew every, every house in town, you know. I was always concerned that he might try to double double back and go by the house or something. He kept the doors locked real good and barred, but that just keeps your friends out. I was concerned about it, but I'd just make you want to work that much harder to go ahead and catch him and, and, and get him put away. After five days, Bob finally caught sight of the convicts. They were captured, David got a life sentence, and was labeled a habitual criminal by the state of Texas. For the trial, Bob was tasked with hauling David back and forth from Brady to the Ellis unit at Huntsville, probably the most secure prison in Texas. I had leg irons on him, had belly chain on him, had one handcuff to one hip, the other hand was handcuffed to the other hip. First red light, I stopped that in Huntsville. Back door opened, he jumped out and ran off. Leg irons laying in the floor, his hands out of the handcuffs. My first thought was, what in the devil? How did this happen? And I jumped out, I left my car sitting right in the middle of that red light intersection with the doors open. And I was running, he was running down the center stop, and I was taking, I was running after him. And boy, there wasn't any way you get a shot at him because there's two minutes of traffic. And I ran him about a block, and then he turned and went into a construction site. And the bulldozer had been raining, the bulldozer had been working, and just soupy mud. And the mud was so deep that it got over the tops of my boots and got down in my boots. And ran up there, and I nearly fell in this creek. It was dark, it was night. And I stopped just in time, and I could hear him splashing around in there a little bit. And then I saw an outline of him, a little bit of his image in there. And but I was out of wind. I was running out of deep mud, and I took as steady aim as I could, and I shot. I missed, and, and I shot again. I missed. Took a deep breath, and I shot again. And there's a good resounding thud that you get when you shoot a deer, and he just squalled out and fell face down in that creek. I thought, well, oh boy, we've been through a lot. This is where it ends right here. I'm just waiting for him to sink. 
Little bitty, he rolled over and squalled in the crying. Oh, God, Bob, don't, don't, I'm dying. Don't, don't shoot me again. I'm dying. I said, well, get out of that damn creek and come back up here. He walked back up there and crawled out of the water. That darn bullet had gone right through the panel of his coat and had him, had him touch his flesh or nothing. I said, well, you son of a gun, you're not even bleeding. You're not even shot. <laughs> he started gagging and, and looked in the mouth. He had a key on his end of his tongue. He'd been trying to swat it. They made the key out of a ballpoint pen liner. When you had to shoot at him, did you hesitate or anything? Did you? Was there any regret or when you thought you'd killed him? Not really. really. Uh, you don't want to kill anybody, first of all. But the thing of it is, you just do what you have to do. David got another long sentence, and now the old kid was done for good. A decade went by with David securely in prison. And then one day, Bob, who was now a lieutenant near retirement, noticed some eerily familiar burglaries. Safes were being cracked all over West Texas. I told everybody, I said, that just sounds to me like that's old David Byers' work, but he's in the pen. He said, well, let's just check and see. Well, he'd, been, he'd been on the ground for a year, he'd paroled out. He'd got a job out there at El Paso at a bootmaker making boots. Two decades after Bob first tackled him, David was back in the small Texas jails where his career as a burglar had begun. As usual, the jailers couldn't get a word out of David, so Bob offered to drive down and talk to him. And after chatting for a while, David turned to Bob. He said, I'm not going to escape out of this jail, but I want to show you how I can. I've already found a flaw where I get it. David was referring to a flaw in the design of the jail. So Bob told the officers, but all he got was a curt reply. Now, nice, it's brand new jail. Said it's it's shape proof. He's not going anywhere. Okay. A few days later, he's gone. <laughs> the two buddies with him. David and his new buddies stole four cars. They robbed grocery stores for cash and food, committing twenty-seven burglaries in total. So many they had to leave the state. Weeks later, Bob got a call about David, but this call was different. David and his buddies had gotten into an altercation over a young woman, and one of them pulled a gun on David. They put two bullets in the back of his head and killed him. The two men were caught in Illinois, and the shooter left a message for Bob. Tell old Bob he can retire now, said, I've killed David for him, <laughs> or something along those lines. We buried David there in the Cowboy Cemetery. You kept track of him, as you say, for 18 years. Yeah. What went through your mind when you, we knew he was dead? Well, I guess it was a little sad. It was a relief. Do you think he considered you a friend? I think he did. Yeah. Yeah. And he told me, he said, I'll tell you this, you and I would have made one hell of a team. <laughs> I said, what are you talking about? He said, it's not a job that I can't pull. and not anything that I can't do. But every time I look up, there you are right on my ass. <laughs> I said, I guess that's sort of a left-handed compliment. I don't know. <laughs>
Big, big thanks to our Texas Ranger, Bob Favor, for sharing his story with the snap. The original sound design for that piece was by Leon Morimoto. It was produced by Luke Quinton. You can check out more of Luke's work at our website, snapjudgment.org. 